We're living at the moment some very big moments in history and we're living those moments right now. Um, we've had a we've got a global pandemic that's sweeping the globe and a lot of our old certainties are starting to crumble. So life as we know it is changing really fast. Um, at the same time, in recent um, weeks, we've seen voices raised all the way around the world um, by people calling for a re-examination of our colonial past. So here in Wellington, our past is all around us. Um, it's there in the statues that we see uh, on city streets. It's uh, there in the names of those streets and suburbs. So the past surrounds us. But it's not always a matter for unity or agreement. Uh, sometimes the past is a cause of pain and conflict in the present. So today's session is about how we remember um, the past. Uh, for me, it's, it's always about how we remember brutal or violent episodes in New Zealand's colonial past, how we carry those memories, uh, especially when there have been so many silences around some of the darkest times in our nation's um, history. So how do we call on the past ethically to understand how we live now? So I'm really delighted to introduce today's panel. I'm going to introduce each speaker as they, they come up. This is a, a group of people who have expertise and deep knowledge about the history of the Wellington region. Um, and we're going to hear from mana whenua, from uh, the Wellington City Council. And we're also going to hear from a historian who's been working on these issues for a very long time. But I'd like to begin by introducing our first speaker, Maury Love. Maury is um, a director of Rokawa Consultants here in uh, Te Whanganui Atara. He's a former chair of the Wellington's Tents Trust, and he's been a Waitangi Tribunal Director. So Maury's work is known to many of us who are here today. He's played an extremely important role in the city over many years. He's an acclaimed writer, an iwi historian, uh, who has massive expertise, particularly about kainga and par sites. Uh, around the Wellington region. He's also an expert on how um, many of the places around our city have acquired their names. Tēnā koi e rangatira. Tēnā koutou anō. You might be a little bit surprised in, in uh, some of the uh, positions that I, I, I might take, but... I want to take you on a, on a brief little trip of, um, of, of some of the colonial history in Wellington. And I do that unashamedly as um, a, a member of uh, Te Atiawa, uh, Taranaki, Ngāti Tama uh, and, and Ngāti Ruanui. Um, and that's, uh, that's the perspective I've come from in this. But... Uh, Thanks uh, to the organisers and and all of those. It's great to see um, uh, such a uh, such a large audience uh, in a time when, it, in fact, now we can have audiences. Um, normally, I'd be doing things online. So, for Te Atiawa and the other Taranaki Iwi of Wellington, um, the impact of colonisation uh, had had been significant and varied. The relationship between the New Zealand company and the iwi leaders, such as Tahori Pauri, Huniana Tapuni, Ihaya Porutu, Ropiha Motoroa, Witako Natata, and many others, with William Wakefield uh, and the New Zealand company, was an active one uh, and an interactive one over a, over a period of years, to the extent that uh, uh, in his early time here, William Wakefield um, was housed at Pitoni Pa uh, by Honiana Tapuni. And um, that started a relationship. And you'll see that that influenced things further on. Um, 
that relationship was close enough that when Henry Williams arrived with the Treaty of Waitangi in April uh, 1840, he and the treaty were regarded with suspicion uh, by the chiefs, no doubt influenced by their earlier interactions uh, with um, the New Zealand Company and in particular William Wakefield. It took some time before the chiefs eventually signed the treaty here um, and, and that has to be seen in the light that previously they had signed a deed with the New Zealand Company uh, in 1839. Um, did, did Māori then understand the differences between uh, a company from London or some other people from London uh, who uh, uh, represented the British government? Well, who knows in, in, in this situation. Later on, the relationship between the chiefs and the British was seen in a different light when Governor George Grey refused adequate compensation for gardens par in a church at Marainuku uh, near Bullcott Farm in the Hutt Valley. Uh, and um, in, in 1846, for Ngāti Rangatahi. Te Atiawa, who had worked with Wakefield and the Crown Land Commissioners trying to sort out land matters in uh, Port Nicholson Block, would see matters in the hut as a distraction from the bigger game. Uh, there was a lot going on in that period from 1839 to 1846. Te Atiawa, who had worked with Wakefield and the land and the Crown Land Commissioners, Spain and, and later McCleverty, um, uh, were trying to sort, sort matters out um, at, at that time. It is of no surprise that Tupuni, Porutu and other Te Atiawa chiefs offered to support the British troops uh, and, um, and, and other forces after the Battle of Bullcott Farm. Um, it's also of, of interest to note that some Ngāti Tōr uh, were also part of, uh, of that, uh, that contingent, um, uh, essentially looking to rout um, the, the, uh, those uh, tribal members sponsored by Tarangi uh, Hayata of Ngāti Tōr, uh, Kaparatahau of Ngāti Rangatahi and Tōpini Tamamaku of Ngāti Haua after they had attacked uh, the British troops at Bullcott Farm. Uh, Ewan's going to talk more about, uh, about that and, and uh, in, in much more detail. But I, I, I just wanted to say that because um, uh, some historians have and others have disparaged Te Atiawa, uh, for their role in this, that altercation. However, I believe that shows a poor understanding of the reality and the politics of the situation. Te Atiawa had to look after their interests throughout the Hutt Valley, which was still in the process of being resolved. And Ngāti Rangatahi and Ngāti Haua, who had been absent in 1840, were not a part of that equation. On the other hand, if George Grey had approved adequate compensation, in my view it was likely that Ngāti Rangatahi and Ngāti Haua would have left the Hutt Valley permanently um, with only Tarangi Hayata being unsatisfied. In the meantime, Taringa Kuri of Ngāti Tama uh, had been taken to Auckland by George Grey and basically left there. Uh, as you know, if you're a Wellingtonian, if you're taken to Auckland and left there, it's a, it is a pretty serious consequence. Um, and so Taringa Kuri played no part in that, in that altercation. Neither did Taropraha. 
he very sensibly left matters um, to Tarangi Hayata, as it was his issue, and Taropraha uh, uh, had very little to do with that, uh, with the matters there. Um, my conclusion on that is these are not matters that can be dealt with by memorials, plaques, or, or, or uh, some other thing uh, around, but only by the fair telling of the story. And my emphasis is on fair. There is no doubt that Te Atiawa, uh, Ngāti Tama, along with Ngāti Tupaia and Ngāti Haumia, did not fare well in the colonial arrangements finalised by the McCleverty Awards of 1847. And uh, in those awards, there was the Crown Grant to the New Zealand Company, the establishment of the Wellington Tenths Reserve, and probably more importantly, the award of land blocks to the various par around the harbour. Um, What was important to Māori is not about memorials and, and, and place names, but it was about land. Um, so um, one of the uh, matters that um, uh, has, has guided me in terms of uh, naming in the land is to look at some of those old land blocks many of which were named at the time and named for specific reasons. Uh, they're names that deserve to come back uh, into the geography uh, of, our, uh, of our cities. Uh, just further from that, um, I guess uh, looked at in the round, and uh, we know that the um, the Waitangi tri Tribunal looked at these matters quite intensely, um, one could draw the conclusion um, that the uh, arrangements made following the New Zealand Company's um, uh, dealing and the Crown uh, Commissioners as a result of the Treaty of Waitangi, um, in, 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 in fact... Uh, left uh, sufficient land uh, in, in terms of um, uh, what Māori needs were. The issues came really with what happened to that land subsequently. Uh, if we step forward to um, 2009, and I know it's a big jump, but in my view, uh, the modern Treaty of Waitangi settlement also did little for Te Atiawa and the other Taranaki hapu uh, in Wellington. Uh, however, that's a matter, it seems, still being fought out today. In Wellington, the naming of streets and places is dominated by names from the New Zealand company, uh, despite the company having a checkered, a checkered history uh, and the other names uh, dominating that were European leaders of the era. None of that is surprising. We'll have a look at uh, some things. There's a, a, a memorial for William Wakefield. Uh, it's now located in the, um, in the Basin Reserve, and I think that's entirely appropriate. It's a cricket ground revered by those who revere cricket. It's a roundabout uh, that... Uh, that, that annoys everybody else. Um, uh, so leave William Wakefield there, um, uh, and, and, uh, and I guess we have to leave that precious English game of cricket there as well. Um, the, the land barons are, are, are well remembered, of course. J.C. Crawford uh, on uh, Motukairangi, the Miramar Peninsula, Watts, Molesworth, you can String the names out; they're all uh, they're all well remembered um, in our streets, uh, in particular in, in in Wellington. I just want to move quickly to the um, 
to, to the modern uh, naming of things. I've uh, alluded to that, but um, when we're naming uh, things from a mana whenua perspective, we need to be we need to be very careful, in my view, about what we do with that, particularly with the use of tupuna names. These are ancestral names, um, and I think we see one up there, uh, Te Whare Pauri. Um, his his name uh, earlier than that was Te Kapi Otarangi, um, which in some ways you would say is better than the, na the name that uh, Napui gave him, which was Whare Pauri. But um, his name has been corrupted all around and uh, you can see the degree of corruption uh, on that, um, uh, that uh, mock-up there. Um, and, uh, you know, so we have to be careful about, I think, the use of tupuna names. How did, how did Māori do, uh, do memorials and, and, and recognise history? And uh, what was done was uh, through pōwhenua, Popo, uh, tomokanga, or, or waharoa, and and often the farinui. Uh, the farinui for many uh, is the history book uh, of the tribe, but not just the tribe, but other tribes as well. And that was the way houses were carved. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and some of these, I'll do a quick flick through um, uh, some of these you can have a look at. Um, some are, uh, are remembered and well-maintained and some are forgotten. And uh, in my view, if we forget the story, uh, then uh, those things lose their relevance. So we need to uh, translate those, uh, hand on those stories uh, particularly to our younger generations, and we need to do that accurately. Um, uh, there's, there's just a little thing I'll, I'll, I'll toss in here in, in that um, uh, Wellington seems to have been captivated, uh, and, and that's in part our... Um, uh, uh, the way we've put things, uh, by two tanifa, and people will be familiar with Naki and Fataitai uh, from the harbour, um, and I won't uh, reiterate that story. Um, but it, it's an interesting myth symbolised all around Wellington. If you go to the, um, I don't know what it's called now, but the stadium, the round one, um, <laughs> it, it keeps changing its name, and that's uh, wonderful for sponsorship. Um, but out the front there is, is on each end of, uh, you'll see the maunga uh, Taranaki in the middle and Naki and Whataitai. Um, they are ubiquitous around, um, but they're not our story. Um, they're, they're really a um, story that goes back, that go back in the mists of time and are, and are, are just one part of the, the rich heritage is here. So I want to, I'm just going to go through Whareinui. Um, there's one, if people have been out the way with two. Arahanui ki te tangata. That was built in 1960. Um, and, uh, oops. These things are going to roll on. Um, people will be familiar with the uh, Kupe uh, uh, group uh, out in front of the, of the Whariwaka. Those who are like me, been around a bit longer, that used to be in the railway station. I'll put some timings on these things. Um, so I'll go through Tāne Te Waiora, um, uh, over on Machu. Uh, talking about the environmental history. Uh, this is a Poe, and it's unfortunately I've got the back side of it here that most people probably have never seen. Um, but it sits opposite Pipitea uh, Morai. It was built as, as part of that shopping centre. This is another 
symbol. This is a pātaka, and this is a, a political symbol um, about the kingitanga. Uh, very important, sits out in the Douse Museum. Uh, Ewan will talk more about uh, uh, Bullcott Farm and, uh, and uh, uh, this uh, uh, memorial stone and plaques, um, nothing to do with, with Māori. Um, that, of course, is uh, uh, William Wakefield and, uh, and uh, the Basin Reserve. Most of you are looking the other way, uh, down at the pitch. So in terms of street names, we've, we're now getting to what a Pody right. Uh, now we've got to get to Puni right. Um, and they've not only used the Puni in Wellington, but also out in the hut. So two cities uh, need to do that. So um, that very quickly is my piece. Noreira tātou mā, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Our next speaker is Nikki Karu. Um, Nikki has iwi affiliations in the Hauraki around Pairoa and uh, Thames Coast. Um, her mother is Fano Gottlieb, which gives her her Latvian heritage, and it's through her mother um, that she is a third-generation Wellingtonian. Nikki is a, a mother of three, and she's worked at the Wellington City Council for 13 years, uh, where she manages Te Rapautama uh, iwi partnership. So she's very much the bridge uh, between where the between the council and and iwi. Um, and in that role, she's been very actively involved in discussions that have been taking place for quite some time now around some of um, Wellington's place names. Tēnā koe, Nikki. Ai te tuatahi, kei te mihi ki a koe e te rangatira Māori, pai te kiti a koe ātinana, kei te tāni nei, um, koutou koto whānau iwi, kei muri, kei mua, kei tōtaha, nō reira, tēnā koe, tēnā koutou, te atia wataranaki ki whānui. Ki ngā kai kōrero o te rā nei, tēnā, kei te mihi ki a koutou, katoa, o oh, tēnā koe, kim. <laughs> Uh, huri noi ngā, ngai tūru, uh, kei te mihi, kei te mihi, kei te mihi kia koutou katoa. Uh, ko ai tēnei, I'm not Jill Day, as you'll see. Councillor Day is very unwell, and she, she must be very unwell because she really likes this sort of gig. Um, but I get the lucky chance to stand in for her. Uh, ko ai tēnei, her uri no te pari hauraki. Uh, ko ngā Puki ki hauraki ka tārehua, e mihi ana ki te whenua, tangi ana ki te tangata. Ko moi hau, kei waho, ko te aroha, kei roto. Uh, ko tapuari ki tōku maunga, ko ohene muri, tōku awa, ko ngahu toitoi te marae, ko ngāti tama te rā, taratukunui o ki iwi. Um, tēnā tātou, ko Niki Kareto Kuingua. I manage uh, the very huge team at Wellington City Council of three, and my colleagues are here, Anna and Renee. So the three of us um, are the go-to for all things, it seems, Māori uh, at Wellington City Council. And uh, I'm here really to talk a little bit about the journey we've been on, particularly in the last couple of years, with regard to our te reo policy and from the te reo policy, our naming policy, um, and just a little look at um, how we got to Te Whare Street. Um, so this is Ngāhiwi Apanui, who's the CE of Te Tairawhiri Te Reo Māori, Māori Language Commission, and our team um, have worked with the Māori Language Commission for several years around Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori. Um, before, but particularly around the um, street parade that we have had every year, except for this year because of COVID. So we're really going to miss the street parade. It's such a highlight of our, of our year. Anyway, in 2017, Ngāhiwi came um, and invited 
the then uh, Mayor Justin Lester to uh, to open the launch, to open the street parade at Civic Square. Um, Justin jumped at that opportunity and in front of, um, you know, 5,000 people who took part in the street parade, he announced that he wanted Wellington City to be a bilingual city. Um, so we were like, what does that mean? What do we have to do in order to make Wellington City a bilingual city? And he set a time frame on that for 2040, which um, is a very lofty manga indeed. Um, but in 2018, Mana Whenua gifted us the name Tengako for the Civic Square. And at the moment, Tengako is a little bit pody because it's pretty empty. We've all had to move out due to earthquake strengthening, uh, but we we're looking forward to moving back. It's not the same being located on the terrace as it is in, at the heart of the city. As we went um, through uh, developing Te Tauihu, Te Reo Māori policy, we spoke, of course, with our mana whenua partners. And these are some words from Wayne Mulligan, who was the chairperson at the time. And also this from Sir Matthew Ray, who retired this year as the executive officer of Te Runanga o Tōranga Tira. He's been a, a man that's influenced the city, as Maori has over many years, serving his iwi. Justin, by the way, received an um, award at the Te Reo Māori Awards last year, just after he had been outcast from Mia. So it was a, an award um, after the election, but you know, just recognising the work that he did to promote um, this policy. And he did lead it from the start, along with Jill. So when Jill came into council, she was asked by Justin, you know, what portfolios do you want? And at the time, we didn't have a Māori portfolio. In fact, in the 13 years that I've been there, we haven't had a Māori portfolio um, for an elected member. So she asked to create the new portfolio of Māori partnerships. And she's been the driving force around... Oh, you know, if you think in the last four years what's happened in Wellington, that's, um, that's Jill. So this is, uh, the yellow is Te Tauihu Te Reo Māori policy and the red is our action plan. We consulted between the 6th of February, launching our um, consultation at Waitangi Park on the big screen on Waitangi Day. Um, it closed on the 12th of March. There were nearly 600 pieces of written feedback, um, which included um, some postcards, social media postings, and formal submissions. It, this, has been, this was my first ever lead on a consultation document, and at the time I remember thinking 600, 600 is not much, you know. There are 200,000 people who live in Wellington and all we get was 600 pieces of feedback. But my colleagues at council reassured me and said 600 is like double what we'd normally get. So I was really pleased with that. In the end, um, over 90% of the feedback was supportive of um, Wellington becoming a Reorua city. 10% uh, were either split around, you know, Wellington City Council should keep to its knitting, rates, rubbish and roading, and not worry about te reo. Um, and then there were, were some that were very opposed and quite abusive around, um, you know, why are we bothering with te reo? It's a dead language and you'll go nowhere by learning te reo. But we just ignored them. Um, and most of that was directed directly at Jill, so she had to deal with some of these um, comments personally. Um, during the consultation, some of the good the comments that we got back around, um, you know, how important is te reo to you as a member of um, Wellington City community, and these are just some of the examples I pulled out from the very, very long list of very, very good reasons why you would want to uh, learn te reo. Um, particularly like the one, I'll be in my 40s by then, I'll be able to call it on Māori with my friends and whānau without people staring at me because it will be normalised. Now this 
was said by a red-haired Ngaitahu princess um, with freckles and very fair skin who speaks fluent te reo Māori. And when she does, she thinks, you know, she feels everyone's looking at her because she shouldn't be, be able to speak te reo. So that, that was my highlight. Um, April last year, we um, signed a mahitahi agreement. Um, part, part of this came out of um, following on from Te Matatini. I don't know if you know what Te Matatini was, but if you were around last March, you would have probably seen quite a bit of um, extra Māori tourists in the city. They weren't actually tourists, they were here for a reason, and it was at the stadium, and it was fantastic. And we worked with Tauraferi to do some... Um, dressing the city a bit for uh, the extra 60,000 people who came to that event. Um, and we decided we should make this a permanent thing. And so we signed our mahitahi agreement, which means we'll work together. I'm about to meet with um, Ngāhiwi and his team uh, to talk about Te o Te Reo Māori and what we're going to be doing as a city, seeing as we're not having a street parade, and how we can, can fund that, because it you know, funding is always um, a big deal and Wellington City Council never has anything to, to contribute um, unless it's all very um, acknowledged in our long-term plan. So long-term planning starts this year and will be signed off in June of next year. Um, so if you get a chance to um, engage with the long-term plan consultation, then please do. Uh, because whatever goes in the air is what happens in the city. So it's a very important document. So one of the first things that we did after um, the policy got passed is to start looking at our naming policy. I think Maureen may have been involved at some point in that. Um, can hardly see, but that does say Whairepo Lagoon. Whairepo Lagoon was one of the naming... Um, prior to this policy, and it took an awful long time and an awful lot of resource uh, to get that name made official. This is part of the problem, is uh, the regulation and the process by which even getting a name corrected, which is an obvious mistake, um, it does take considerable time, lots of different people being involved, submissions to the New Zealand Geographic Board, I mean, I can't talk on their process, but... It, it is a very complex thing, so it's very time-consuming. Um, but eventually we did get it done. And um, and I see the Whairepulu in that lagoon regularly, so so appropriate. Um, let me just think. When I did um, a bit of data searching for Jill, who was supposed to be speaking today, we looked up the number of names, street names, in the city, there are about 2,000, and that includes sort of access ways and laneways and occasionally a track or something similar to that. About 2,000 and 12% appeared to be Māori in the sense that some of the words didn't spring to... They, they had the right lettering, but they didn't particularly look Māori as such. They could... They, you know, like Aurora, for example, which is obviously one of the boats. So, but... So there were other names that may not have been Māori but could have had the right combination of vowels and um, consonants. So 12% of our street names potentially Māori, uh, although this is improving. So the naming policy gives priority to um, mana whenua names, so names of site significance and history, but also um, te reo names. So if they want a con contemporary name, then um, then that, that gets a precedence over others. And about, this is all a little bit about equity. So making that 12% uh, um, more equitable to our treaty partner. But, but everyone is an effort. Every, every single time we go to naming something, it's an awful lot of time not only from mana whenua, but also the offices within Wellington City Council and um, and also for our decision makers at our City Strategy Committee and Council. 
be nice if it was easier and we could get a lot more done a lot faster and I'd like to see a bit more of it in my lifetime but everything seems to take a long, long time. Um, this, I think everyone must have this photo in their presentations because it's on the website. Thank you, Emma. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember when it first started. Actually, it came out of the Te Reo policy but Wellington Tents Trust have been asking council to fix this for many, many years, and um, I cannot think why it wasn't done a long time ago, uh, but definitely with, with the Te Reo policy and with the naming policy, we had the instrument that we needed to get it done. Um, they made the decision just before lockdown, and so the signs just went up after lockdown, our contractors, very diligent, didn't tell us they were putting them up, otherwise we could have made a bigger, bigger deal of it, but they went up. Um, now, the Wadi Puri has to stay up for at least a year, and this is to do with emergency services in New Zealand Post, and just so the transition um, is smooth. Uh, so we can't even celebrate taking that down for another year, but what we are going to do is we are going to attach a um, another plaque or another sign um, to the bottom of the street sign, and that will explain who Te Whare Pauri was um, and why the sign is so important. So it will. I've just got to get confirmation from the Wellington Tents Trust, but I think it will say Te Whare Pauri, uh, Kakapi o Te Rangi, uh, Te Atiawa Rangatira died 1842, I think is what will go on there. And then we will have more information on our website as well in regard to um, Te Whareipauri. And I, no doubt Wellington Tents Trust will as well. Hi, koina. Kei te mihi atu ki a koutou, ko tai mai e Thank you for coming, thank you for listening to me. I apologise for Jill, she owes me big time. Um, but she will have been very sick because she likes this sort of gig. And honestly, memorials and statues and naming is uh, really, really on top of her priority list. Thank you. Kia ora, Nikki. Our last speaker today is Ewan Morris. Um, Ewan is a historian uh, with an interest in public memory and cultural contestation over symbols. He writes about history and public memory at his blog, which is password.blog, and I should just say that I am an avid follower of his blog myself. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, please read it. Um, there are very few historians who can um, operate in the public sphere with such insight and clarity. Ewan's um, publications include work on how um, history is used in, in place names debates. He's written about uh, memorials in different parts of New Zealand um, and also Ireland, um, and of very great relevance to us here in Wellington. He's written extensively about the Bulcott Farm Memorial in Lower Hutt. Tēnā Ewan. Uh, tēnā koutou, ko hui hui mai nei i tēnei rā, o ti rā i tēnei wā, whakanui a Matariki. Mānawa mai e te putanga o Matariki. Uh, kei ngā um, kaitiaki o te rohe nei, kei uh, koutou o te atia wa Taranaki whānui, tēnei te mihi ki au koutou. Uh, <coughs> tēnei te mihi ki ngā kaiwhakahaere o tēnei hui, ki au koutou o te puna mātauranga o Aotearoa o man, te manatū taonga hoki. Tēnā koutou. A tēnā koe e te ahorangi, a Joanna, a māu tēnei kōreroe e ārahi. A tēnā kōroa, Māori, kōroa ko Neki, nō kūte whiwhi ki te whakarongo ki a kōroa ki te whakawhiti-whiti kōrero hoki tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, so I feel like I should apologise a little bit at the beginning because I'm going to pull back the picture a little bit here, and so I'm not going to focus so much on the local context, which means that I won't be talking about Bullcott's farm, sorry, Maury, maybe later or maybe on another occasion. Um, so for several years now, debates about memorials and place names have been gathering steam, uh, both overseas and here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. These debates aren't new, 
but they seem to have entered a new phase internationally since about 2015. Movements such as Roads Must Fall and Black Lives Matter have put the interface between historical uh, memory and contemporary experiences of racism and injustice squarely into the public arena. And in Aotearoa, major anniversaries such as the 150th of the New Zealand Wars have brought a, a renewed focus on colonial history at, a, at the same time as there have been growing calls for the Crown to return power and authority to Māori in a range of areas. Memorials and place names have become a focus of debate for reasons I'll come to shortly. But since the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, USA in May this year, demands for change to names and memorials associated with colonisation and racism have moved up another notch. As someone who follows such debates closely, I've been astonished at the level of activity and discussion on this topic over the last couple of months. The French historian Maurice Agulon described the craze for erecting statues in the late 19th century as statue mania. Today, in a number of countries, we almost have a reverse statue mania, an enthusiasm for pulling statues down, though the number that have actually been removed is still small compared to those that remain standing. So why do memorials and names become a focus of controversy? First, names, memorials and other symbols are used to represent and construct community identity. Commemorative mon monuments and names signal the individuals and events that are, or perhaps once were, officially considered important in the history of a community. More often than not, these symbols represent the uh, perspectives of those who are or were politically and socially powerful and they ignore other views of a community's past and present. So disputes about commemorative objects and names are about which stories are recognised and valued in public space. They're about identity and power, about who we are as communities, who we want to be, and who gets to be part of that discussion. Second, names and monuments are about history, and history is always contested. How the past is viewed changes over time as we ask new questions or new evidence comes to light. The past also looks different depending on whose perspective it's viewed from. And the past isn't over and done with. Past policies, practices and attitudes continue to shape distribution of power, resources and social standing in the present. So arguing about memorials can be a way not only of talking about changing views of history but also of confronting ongoing legacies of injustice and inequality. Third, place names and monuments provide a focus by giving concrete, literally for some memorials, expression to history. At the same time, it's difficult to convey a nuanced view of history through a name or a memorial. Names and memorials also appear unchanging, even as the society around them evolves. Providing continuity through time makes them important markers of identity, but their continuity of form also means they risk becoming out of step with changing community attitudes. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, it's also important to recognise that not only are there multiple perspectives on history, but there's also more than one cultural tradition of remembering. The meeting of Māori and Pākehā from the late 18th century was an encounter between two societies with differing, though overlapping, uh, cultures of memory. As Māori has, has already talked about, um, and Joan has also talked about this, uh, Māori remembered the deeds of their tūpuna through oral forms such as waiata, whakatauki, whaikōrero and whakapapa, as well as in physical forms such as uh, whakairo or carving. Both Māori and Pākehā used place names to commemorate important individuals and events and to lay claim to land. But Pākehā also brought commemorative practices from Europe, particularly the creation of statues and other monuments of stone and metal. These memorials were meant to last through the ages and were intended to inspire and educate future generations. As with so much else, Māori quickly grasped the Pākehā way of doing things borrowing and adapting it when it suited them. 
Māori saw similarities as well as differences between Pākehā and Māori forms of commemoration. When the statue of Governor Gray in Auckland was unveiled in 1904, a group of rangatira um, uh, presented an address which compared the two traditions. Pākehā, on the other hand, generally had little understanding of Māori forms of commemoration. And while Māori continued to remember the past in their own ways, public space quickly became dominated by Pākehā symbols. Though many natural features as well as towns retained Māori names, a significant number of larger cities and towns were named after British people and places, and most streets were given Pākehā names. Mountains so central to Māori identity were renamed, Taranaki to Egmont, Auraki to Cook, and so on. And memorials in public places mostly commemorated Pākehā or portrayed a Pākehā view of history, though a small but significant number were initiated by Māori from the late 19th century onwards. So Aotearoa New Zealand, like many other countries, has a public landscape that's unbalanced. It's dominated by Pākehā perspectives, stories and ways of remembering, which have overwritten and pushed aside Māori understandings of the past. This isn't the only imbalance, of course. Our public memorials rarely commemorate women or Pacific or Asian peoples or people who differ from dominant forms of gender or sexuality or working class people or people with disabilities. I've sketched out this bigger picture because I think there's a risk in focusing on a few particularly con contentious memorials or names of missing the forest for the trees. It's important to consider what we should do with specific memorials that are viewed as problematic, but we also need to work on rebalancing the wider landscape. And at this point, I'll leave aside the question of place names and focus on memorials. In seeking to diversify the stories we tell in public space, we've got an opportunity to be creative and to move away from bronze and stone monuments. Importantly, new works can not only tell Māori stories, but also restore Māori art and symbols to their rightful place in the heart of our public spaces. We're seeing a growing number of commemorative projects initiated by Māori and employing Māori iconography, such as carved wooden pole. New types of commemoration can also challenge the great man view of history by making the contributions of individuals, oh sorry, by marking the contributions of groups of people, particularly those who've previously been uh, under-recognised or marginalised. Collective memorials have at least two advantages over statues of individuals. They avoid the problem of setting up individual people with all their inevitable human flaws as representatives of a community. And they recognise that we all rely on others. None of us achieves anything entirely alone. We're still left though with the question of whether existing memorials that portray a one-sided or objectionable view of history of the past uh, should be removed. I don't think there's any one-size-fits-all answer to this question. It's something that needs to be worked through case by case in communities depending on the particular context. As a starter for 10, I've suggested some questions that could be helpful uh, when communities are deciding whether to remove a particular memorial. These questions aren't specific to Aotearoa, but some or all may be relevant here. If the memorial, to is, if the memorial is to an individual, was that person responsible for gross violations of human rights, such as genocide, slavery or torture? What was the original purpose and context for the memorial, for its creation? Are the inscriptions on the memorial offensive or does the monument depict members of particular groups in a demeaning manner? Is the location of the memorial problematic? For example, is it on land of particular cultural significance to indigenous people? Does the monument dominate the landscape around it? Has the memorial become a rallying point for groups with hateful ideologies? And finally, and these are all things that could tie into this last point, does the memorial cause significant offence to a substantial number of people? If managed well, 
Discussion of questions such as these can be an opportunity for communities not only to decide how to deal with a particular monument, but also to learn and to better understand about history and different perspectives on the past. Destroying a memorial or completely removing it from site are, are not the only options for contentious memorials. There's a range of other possible approaches, including placing the memorial in a museum, adding new plaques or interpretation, creating new memorials that represent different stories and historical experiences from the older memorials. These approaches have been well canvassed over the past couple of months and all have their advantages and their drawbacks. Before concluding though, I'd just like to mention another strategy that could be worth consideration. The point's been well made by a number of commentators that memorials do not, by merely existing, educate people about history. Most people ignore them, while anyone who idly stops to look at many older memorials will either walk away none the wiser or positively misinformed about history. But there are ways of bringing existing memorials alive, of prompting people to think about the stories they tell and those they ignore, of making contested uh, histories uh, visible, and of neutralising the impression that these, uh, com those commemorated by these memorials are necessarily worthy of honour. New artworks can be created that respond to existing memorials. This happened with some of the works created as part of the Monument Lab project in Philadelphia, USA, such as Hank Willis Thomas's All Power to All People. Recently, the artist Banksy suggested, probably tongue in cheek, that the Edward Colston statue, the statue of the slave trader in Bristol, could be re-erected together with bronze figures of protesters pulling it down. <laughs> However, artistic and political responses to memorials need not even involve the creation of new physical structures. In Richmond, Virginia, the faces of George Floyd and others killed by police were projected onto the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and the Polish-American artist Krzysztof Wodiczko has made politically motivated video, in, uh, video projections onto monuments a central part of his practice. Motion-activated sound installations could also be used to bring memorials alive in interesting and challenging ways. Imagine, for example, approaching one of New Zealand's colonial monuments and hearing a waiatatangi, or a story telling of the impact on Māori of war and land confiscation. A particularly simple strategy was recently employed by some Wellington activists who placed red scarves uh, as blindfolds on several colonial monuments to promote conversations about colonisation and racism. These are conversations we need to have. Our memorials have long provided a blinkered view of the past. It's time to make those blind spots visible. Kia ora koutou. Um, thank our speakers today. We we have a little bit of time. Um, we're just going to have a couple of questions um, that I have for the panel. I'm interested to hear your feedback on. Ewan has talked about how we have unbalanced public landscapes in in. New Zealand. And I'm just wondering, um, in the Wellington situation, and perhaps I can start with you, Matua, we have place names, we have statues in Wellington that, that speak to a history of racism and colonisation. And one of the things that does come up as we start to talk about those histories more openly, we start to expose the silences. And for a lot of people that... It, brings up feelings of, of guilt or remorse or anger or shame or resentment. And I wonder, from a mana whenua perspective, how we might have some of those conversations ethically. Kia ora koutou. I want to start this way and about a change that has been, that has been occurring, and I want to use the example of uh, Pukiahu, um, the, the uh, War Memorial Park. When that was first being conceived and designed, it, it in fact had uh, virtually no Māori content whatsoever. And um, 
in the course of that design, uh, that, uh, that started to change and it provided an opportunity to uh, interpret history um, looking at uh, wars and altercations, um, really, including uh, the land wars, um, uh, the, the world wars, and um, but also looking at um, going right back in time. So now that park has, for those who can interpret it, a, a history uh, that starts from the very earliest of Māori history uh, through to the, the 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 modern times, so and I, I think that's an example. Um, uh, yes, there, there there is a bronze in there, Hinirangi, and um, uh, and and what that does, and is probably different from many, uh, is to emphasise the important role of women, because in in wars that's often hidden uh, in the history. But it's also uh, in terms of tikanga Māori uh, in, in, in there. So, you know, that's, that's one example where I think it was a, a broad palette and an opportunity uh, to tell a, a much wider and, and richer story. And uh, it's not just uh, uh, about Wellington. Um, it, it is all of Aotearoa, but not just all of Aotearoa, but um, World War one World War Two, and and so on, and also there um, of significance included in the Australian Memorial um, was really uh, the recognition, um, like it or don't, but um, of the Aboriginal contribution uh, in in those altercations, which was uh, significant. Uh, it was far more difficult um, uh, there for for Aboriginals, um, and uh, so I think I think uh, that for me sort of signalled a tide of change. Kia thank you, Nikki. Can I throw it to you? You've you've been working with the council for many years now, and working at the sharp edges of some changes around the city in terms of of place names. How is it from a from a council perspective dealing with some of the issues around that, given that some sometimes they are contentious? How do you have those debates so that people feel like they're being heard? Um, I, and by the way, I feel really privileged to work for Wellington City Council. The city is special. I was born here and um, it is very special to me as well. Um, and Mori and Honiana and Kim will know that the relationship between mana whenua and the city can be a whole lot better. We've just had some um, discussions around that recently and uh, it's hard to put your finger on really what the challenge is um, but we're hoping that things will improve and, and part of it is requires the community voice as well. We as part of the naming policy, we are naming all our new facilities, so you'll be seeing more te reo names coming up. We just opened our central library, our CBD library, not our central library, that's a whole nother tikanga. Um, our, our CBD library, uh, Te Awe, and that's on Brandon Street, so get along and have a look at that. Tawe also happens to be my son's name, so my friends say to me, oh, you managed to get a library named after your son. I go, no, 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 that name was gifted. And it represents the, um, the white feather that's a symbol of peace that's very important to Taranaki whanui. Um, every naming opportunity is a challenge. Um, I think we have that very strong colonial focus and we also have some very strong... Um, supporters of our colonial history at our decision-making table. And, and so there is always going to be this, um, this contentious uh, subject matter which when it comes to memorials and um, statues and naming. Um, what, what is important for those who sit at the decision-making table is that they hear from the community. And so they do hear quite a lot from a part of the community, the vocal part of the community who 
um, call themselves progressive but really do not want change. Um, and, and I guess it's rather than uh, it being a Wellington City Council mana whenua um, matter to own, it really is the community's uh, thing to own because it's not our problem, it's the city's problem. Yeah, so, so voice from the community is, uh, is always a good thing and, and, and not always that loud, um, objectionable voice. Karen Nikki, you and I'm going to throw this over to you. Historians are people who constantly prod at difficult silences. Um, and, and, you know, there's, when these issues are brought to light, they are often challenging uh, in the present. What's the responsibilities of, of a historian like yourself in your critic and conscience role? Well, I think firstly for um, Pākehā historians like me, one responsibility is to um, listen to the voices of whānau hapu and iwi and the stories that they're telling and to reflect and, um, you know, to take those uh, on board in a humble sort of a way. Um, I think also um, historians do have a responsibility to challenge their community um, to think about some of the more difficult um, parts of history. Um, I don't think anyone needs feel um, shame or guilt about that history. Um, it's not about that. It's about just facing up to it, taking responsibility, realising that history has consequences. Um, so I think um, historians do have a responsibility to be part of that discussion. They have a responsibility to be part of the discussion, for example, about history in schools, which is something that's going on at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think historians should always be asking quest difficult questions, um, raising difficult issues uh, and challenging their community. Just picking up on on that issue, we have a new history curriculum that will be rolled out in schools um, by around 2022, although I understand it's been slightly um, delayed. One of the things that, that the government is talking about is creating a, a curriculum, a history curriculum, that is responsive to local places, so that stories, local stories can be told in, in places um, where the teaching is, is going on. So I, I just, I, I'm wondering if, if, we're thinking about this new curriculum, the the children who will be carrying these stories forward into the next generation. I'm wondering, um, Maury, what stories would you like to see being told in the Wellington region in the new curriculum? I think before we um, even engage in the new curriculum, we, we have to engage in a process called educating ourselves. Um, to an extent, the Waitangi Tribunal claim process um, uh, wasn't in part that, but not enough of our people were able to participate in that. So we need to understand those matters ourselves um, before, in fact, we engage um, externally, in, 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 in my view, with um, how that... Um, how that will be will be formulated, and I suspect that's probably the same for uh, all other tribes. Some of their self-education stuff will be better um, in in some tribes, like uh, Naitahu spent a lot of time and effort on that, and I think uh, Waikato Tainui and uh, and and a number of others. Um, uh, but you know, we are we are distant from that colonial history. Nobody lived through that. Um, and you know we need to to um, to un understand that um, from a a, a a a true perspective, and uh, uh, and some of that's not very comfortable for a lot of people, and some pe people carry stories that are frankly nonsensical, and other things will need to be put on the table. Then I think we'd be in a position to start talking about that, that story uh, more broadly and, uh, and uh, that it can influence the curriculum. 
that it has to be told from a position of understanding is 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 much more important. So um, that's going to be a big exercise. Kia Can I throw it open? Open you and or Nikki? Do you have any responses to that? Wellington has um, one kūrākaupapa Māori in the city boundaries, and um, Renee was here earlier, but also like to acknowledge our Rokura Wingaroa, Tinakwe. But you know what happens in the Kura, and I, mean, I don't really want to speak on behalf of the Kura, but is that they learn the local history, and um, it's like a real priority for them and I don't know, they will have had you in to speak to them, no doubt, up at Oroaiti and I know they've had Ben Ngaia um, to do quite a you know, a thorough process with them, I don't know what you do via Melissa at, at Kohanga but I, I'm sure those babies grow up singing some waiata that other early childhood centres probably don't, it's yeah, it is about educating yourself and just doing it I really think, just give it a go um, there's such richness and sense of place. And so this is where I'll put on my hat as a proud resident of Te Awakairangi, the Hutt Valley, and um, say that there are so many fabulous stories in the hut that we could be telling and that, that um, uh, kids in uh, schools and kura could be learning. I mean, there's obviously the very rich and long Māori history of Te Awakairangi. Um, there's the industrial history. There's the history of um, market gardening. There's the history of um, Nai Nai, which Ben, who I can see there in the audience, has written so much about and how that was sort of a, somewhere that was, you know, planned as a sort of, um, you know, a path, uh, a, um, you know, community that was meant to lead the way for the future in terms of urban design. So many fabulous stories that people could be learning about that deal with so many different facets of our history. And um, Lower Heart is really not capitalising on those. I would love to see those stories being told. Can I just say one more thing? And um, I don't. It's. <laughs> I find sometimes we place a rather large burden on mana whenua as well, uh, and we kind of, um, in my experience at the city council, we don't remunerate for that very fairly. We might think a koha. Actually, you know, this is. You know, this is intellectual property and a taonga. And so we need to do it right as well, and not create um, more hard work for uh, for iwi that are, you know, have have sort of limited capacity to be able to to respond. I can't imagine you having to respond to every primary school, you know, every kindy, every every college. Although the colleges um, generally have fairly good relationships with um, our mana whenua, but yeah. Kia ora. Thank you very much. I'd like, um, can we put our hands together, Homei Tapaki Paki, for our speakers? <laughs>